Welcome to episode 27 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Centre. As John and I discussed the topics for this show, I said that we should start with Tamara Leach because I think that's what people want to hear about. And that's when John made an unusual suggestion that I should, in place of my regular introduction, Read the whole of a column by Karen Selleck about Tamara Leach's bail hearing that appeared recently in the Western Standard. Well, he's the boss, and I am the flunky, despite my grandiose title. By way of introducing Karen Selleck, I should say that she is a columnist not only for the Western Standard, but also for other publications like the National Post and Canadian Lawyer Magazine, to name a couple. She is, or was, a practicing lawyer with some 38 years in the field, retiring in 2016. On July 12, 2022, she published the following column, which I will now read, under the title, Tamara Leach's Decision Undermines Confidence in the Justice System. Oh, the irony! Justice of the Peace Paul Harris told Tamara Leach last Friday, July 8th, quote, your detention is necessary to maintain confidence in the administration of justice, unquote. However, by deciding to keep her in jail for at least another week, the JP has single-handedly undermined many Canadians' confidence in the administration of justice, including mine. The oral decision given by JP Harris raises many questions. First, why did he not release written reasons at the same time? I've asked the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, the organization providing Tamara's legal defense, for a copy of the written decision, only to be told as of Saturday that they don't have it, and don't even know if there is one yet. J.P. Harris heard the case on Monday, July 4th, and reserved his decision to Friday, July 8th. What was he doing on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, if not preparing his written decision? Performing weddings? Or was he consulting with unknown people behind the scenes regarding what he should say? Clearly, he had something ready for court on July 8th, because he gave his decision orally. So why not follow the usual practice of releasing written reasons at the same time, especially for a high-profile case such as this? I searched the Canley database for written decisions penned by J.P. Harris since his appointment in 2017, but was unable to find a single one. It appears he's not given to writing much. We may have to await the production of a transcript for purposes of appeal in order to be really certain of what he said. While many news stories mention Tamara's next court appearance will be on July 14th, I haven't seen any indicating why she's returning that day and what issue will be dealt with then. It looks as though we'll all have to wait, mystified, to find out. Meanwhile, I couldn't help wondering, who is Justice of the Peace Paul Harris anyhow? According to the Government of Ontario Bulletin that was issued at the time of his appointment, he doesn't have a law degree or any legal experience. He ordinarily sits in Cornwall, not Ottawa. He was appointed in June 2017, along with 12 other new JPs. While most of the other appointees were either lawyers or had significant backgrounds relating to law and courts, 
Justice Harris's qualifications were that he had worked for the federal government for 16 years, the last seven of which he spent managing procurement policy and reporting at Parks Canada. As well, he had mentored youth through Trust 15, a Toronto-area charity. These qualifications don't inspire confidence in me that he had a solid grasp of legal principles such as, for instance, the presumption of innocence. Keep in mind his decision effectually imposed a prison term on someone who hasn't yet been tried for the offenses she is accused of and is legally entitled to be presumed innocent until her guilt is proven. Yes, there is a reverse onus for breach of bail condition, but the penalty J.P. Harris imposed is vastly disproportionate to the breach alleged, namely a three-second interaction with Tom Morazzo in the presence of other people, possibly including her counsel. The probability they plotted a further convoy in that time period is zero. Unlike some other provinces, Ontario doesn't require a justice of the peace to be a lawyer or to have any prior knowledge of law. A community college degree and 10 years of work, even volunteer work, are sufficient qualifications. Even the Toronto Star, whose editorial positions I ordinarily disagree with, see some problems with this situation. Its 2016 article on this subject quoted one lawyer as saying that when JPs have little or no prior knowledge of the judicial system, quote, their default position is to do whatever the Crown suggests which is detention, or sort of this mindless imposition of unduly restrictive and unjustified bail conditions, unquote. This brings me to Crown Prosecutor Moisha Karimji, whose conduct towards Tamara does seem to me to fall into the mindless and unduly restrictive category. Karimji is the guy who insisted back in May even agreeing to accept the JCCF's award constituted a breach of bail conditions. He then had to be cautioned by Justice Phillips, the judge who amended Tamara's bail conditions so she could attend the JCCF award ceremony, to mind his demeanor. Karimji demanded Justice Phillips recuse himself for bias, which the judge justifiably refused. Further details of Karimji's courtroom antics on that occasion are here, and a link provided. Karimji also reportedly used other flamboyant language in court while representing the government on the case. For instance, he referred to Leach as having, quote, kicked in the mouth, unquote, the previous gift of the amendment of her bail conditions. He referred to the convoy's presence in Ottawa as the occupation of the city, and he spoke of the residents of Ottawa as helpless victims. I looked up Karimji in the Law Society of Ontario's directory and discovered his office is 161 Elgin Street in Ottawa. The injunction that was granted in February against trucker honking was for, quote, the vicinity of downtown Ottawa being any streets north of Highway 417, unquote. Mr. Karimji's office is in the zone covered by the injunction. Was he personally bothered by the honking during the Freedom Convoy's presence in the city? Does he see himself as one of the helpless victims on whose behalf he is seeking to punish Tamara? The Law Society's Rules of Professional Conduct say when acting as a prosecutor, quote, The lawyer's prime duty is not to seek to convict, but to see justice is done through a fair trial on the merits. 
The prosecutor exercises a public function involving much discretion and power and must act fairly and dispassionately. Unquote. From what I've observed, it appears to be Mr. Karimji who should recuse himself from this case. Karimji's LinkedIn profile shows he was a criminal defense lawyer, briefly, before jumping to the Crown's office in October 2000. Apparently, he prefers putting people into jail rather than trying to keep them out. Or maybe it was the salary that attracted him. $229,382 last year, according to Ontario's Sunshine List. I doubt whether many criminal defense lawyers in private practice earn that much. Historically, it's been very difficult for Canadians to win lawsuits against Crown attorneys or police officers for malicious prosecution or negligent investigation. However, the whole world is turning topsy-turvy these days, and Mr. Karimji may find it wise to, quote, govern himself accordingly, unquote, as lawyers like to say. Fiddy. Okay, John, care to comment? No. Uh, Tamara's criminal counsel has uh, advised me to not talk about Tamara in the weeks ahead, so um, I will let intelligent and and excellent writers like Karen Selleck uh, and and other good people talk about the case. You tricked me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So what are we going to talk about for an hour here, John? We're supposed to do something. Well, it'll be less than an hour, but yeah. Annette Lewis, uh, who was just this past week denied life-saving transplant surgery by the Honorable Justice R. Paul Belzil. Ah. And if you go to www.jccf.ca and look under news releases, you will find the one about uh, patient-denied life-saving care. Um, And there's a link there to the judgment, which is only 15 pages. Or if you're not looking at the Justice Centre website, you can go to Canly, C-A-N-L-I-I, which is Canadian Legal Information Institute, and they very likely have it posted by now. And you go to Alberta, Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, and then uh, if you type in Annette Lewis, double N, double T, Annette Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, you will have, uh, you'll be able to pull up that case on uh, Canly, I, I would assume. Okay, so what do you want to say about this? Actually, I know what I want to say, but well, why don't you start off? I think <laughs> you were. Well, I just want to know why the uh, the doctors' names were protected in the court judgment. That's all, because it seems to me these doctors are making public policy. So I thought, well, you know, we should know who they are. Uh, I'd have to double check with the lawyers. Although we have to be cautious about exercising that principle, because you could pretty soon you'd have a completely non-transparent court system if everybody could just say, well, I'm, I'm scared of a bad public reputation. I'm scared of getting flack. Uh, pretty soon you're going to have this anonymous court system, which is what uh, they have in repressive regimes. Uh, th- there's a good reason for court proceedings being open and public, and that is uh, accountability protects all citizens uh, because a secret court is the antithesis of the free society. If the government can arrest you, prosecute you, and uh, do that all in secret and issue a punishment in secret, then there's no transparency because nobody knows uh, who the judge was, what the rationale was. And public criticism of court decisions from lawyers and non-lawyers is a vital part of the legal process. But in any event, yeah, you're correct. The the style of cause says Annette Lewis, applicant, and then for respondents, it lists Alberta Health Services, 
first and foremost. And then it says ABC Hospital, Dr. A, Dr. B, Dr. C, Dr. D, Dr. E, and Dr. F. So five anonymous doctors, one anonymous hospital, and the type of transplant uh, that Annette Lewis is looking for um, that particular body part uh, is also redacted from the judgment. So, yeah. So this strikes me as sort of bureaucratic uh, butt covering or something. I don't know. I just didn't like it. So that's why that's what I wanted to say. Now that has no legal value, I'm sure, but perhaps you could give us your assessment of this case. So in, in a nutshell, we've got uh, Alberta health services refusing to provide life-saving treatment. Uh, Annette Lewis will die without this transplant. Uh, Alberta Health Services refuses to provide life-saving treatment uh, based on Annette's decision to not take the the new uh, COVID injection for which there's no no long-term safety data. And so I'm going to go through the judgment. It's only 15 pages. And uh, so, you know, there's nothing about it, I think, that puts it out of reach of of anybody, lawyer or not. You can go through it. Uh, The ruling speaks for itself, but I'm going to go through segments of it and uh, and comment on it. So paragraph nine, the factual background, um, the judge says it's very sad. Annette Lewis is dying. In 2018, she was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The disease is terminal. She has been advised that she will not survive. She will not survive unless she receives a double transplant of an organ that cannot be named. Uh, In January of 2019, she met with the team of doctors and other health professionals who comprise the transplant program at the ABC hospital. Um, I guess we can say it's in Alberta. That's that's for sure, because it's an Alberta Court of Queen's Bench ruling. From August of 2019 to March of 2020, she underwent extensive testing. It was determined that aside from her condition, she's in excellent health, and she she thus qualified for a double-something transplant. And she was placed on the wait list in June of 2020, was prescribed a series of medications, which she took as directed. Uh, Starting in January of 2020, she was advised that she would have to have a series of vaccinations, including childhood vaccinations, because her vaccination history could not be located and verified. So Annette Lewis agreed and received multiple vaccinations. She was then told in March of 2021, (laughs) by this point in time, by the way, I mean, we we remember the... uh, well, this was at the beginning of the big rollout before a lot of people got vaccine. She was advised that in order to receive the double transplant, she'd have to take the COVID-19 vaccine, which to date she has refused. So the judge then quotes extensively from an affidavit of Dr. A. So this is a, uh, a court filed affidavit where you swear under oath to be telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And, um, so we don't have time to go through the all of the affidavit as quoted in the court decision. Uh, there's lots of background uh, information about the transplant program and how it's run and how it's managed and, and those sorts of things. And then uh, on page five of the judgment at paragraph 23, it says, unfortunately, donors are a scarce resource and the transplant has a waitlist mortality of approximately 20%, meaning one in five patients waitlisted will die prior to transplant. So that's a sad commentary on Canada's government healthcare monopoly. 
um, the Supreme Court of Canada in the Shawili decision in 2005 ruled that this was um, a violation of the Charter Section 7 right to life, liberty, and security of the person to be denied access to health care outside of the government's monopoly. And this is the situation in pretty much all 10 provinces. They use different tools and different laws, but the bottom line is uh, once the government takes over a certain area of health care, um, it is illegal to purchase private health insurance. So you're, you're stuck with the government or nothing. Now, if it's something not covered, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, dental, chiropractic, massage, uh, podiatry, which is foot care. There's all kinds of things that are not part of the government's healthcare monopoly. And you have to pay out of pocket and, uh, you know, you can get some health coverage from your employer. Uh, but for something like this in particular, for organ transplants, this is within the government's healthcare monopoly. So you cannot, you're at the mercy of the government's healthcare monopoly unless you are very wealthy and you can afford a hundred thousand, 500,000, uh, you know, three quarters of a million, what have you to pay out of pocket. And there are some, not many people who can afford that, but un unless you're part of the 1%, you're stuck with the government's healthcare monopoly. Now that's a bit oh, of, so we don't matter. Okay. Got it's, it. it's a side tangent. This is, it's, it's only uh, Cuba, North Korea and Canada that make private healthcare partially illegal and every other country has a public system and then they also have a private system and the two of them function side by side and the Netherlands and Singapore and Japan and Germany and f dozens and dozens of other countries, uh, which by the way, have uh, shorter wait lists than what Canada does. So that makes perfect sense, of course, because if people want to opt out, they can, and that would shorten the wait list, right? Yeah. Okay. So paragraph 26 of the doctor's affidavit quoted in the court judgment says, the post-operative immunocompromised state makes the recipient very susceptible to infection. Infection is a significant cause of post-transplant mortality and morbidity, which in plain English, death and illness, <laughs> which is why... Transplant patients are required to be up to date on their vaccine schedules for hepatitis B, diphtheria, tetanus, axillular pertussis, that's DTAP, I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, influenza, pneumococcus, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, and hemophilus, influenza type B, uh, and others. And now also COVID-19, as explained below. Okay, so here we have the medical doctor uh, following the government's narrative. And of course, we have to pretend that uh, COVID-19 is this unusually deadly killer on par with the Spanish flu of 1918, which is the big lie on which all of the violations of our charter rights and freedoms are based on the big lie, which we knew to be false. Um, the lie was spread by Neil Ferguson at Imperial College in March of 2020. He said that COVID would be like the Spanish flu of 1918 and that uh, tens of millions of people would die. Uh, over 300,000 people in Canada would die, you know, based on Ferguson's prediction. Uh, we have the, the Jason Kenney government with uh, the Chief Medical Officer Dina Hinshaw fear-mongering, saying as many as 32,000 Albertans would die, which, of course, is a, uh, looks like a Neil Ferguson-type number, right? 300,000 Canadians, 32,000 Albertans. Uh, so they're just following this fear-mongering, which may have been 
temporarily okay as a precaution for two weeks to flatten the curve, but unfortunately it's turned into 28 months. We see that now with recently the federal government announcing that uh, we're going to have to be injected forever. There's no more uh, fully vaccinated. Now it's, uh, are you, are you up to date on your vaccinations and you have to get injected once every nine months uh, forever and ever. So this is just a, a, a sick, uh, a sick way into this uh, permanent perpetual vaccination of the entire population with a substance for which there's no long-term safety data. Yeah. You know, and this was predicted by people like us way back early in the pandemic. I, I didn't that, predict uh, it, so but I remember people in early yeah. 2020 when they brought in the two weeks to flatten the curve, but that almost immediately the government started saying, well, there's no, there's no treatment for COVID. And so the only way to get rid of lockdowns is vaccinations. And of course, everybody wanted to, even the lockdown supporters, you know, kind of sort of wanted to get rid of lockdowns. So it got shifted into, uh, if you hate lockdowns, uh, go get injected. But this was predicted. This is going to, it was predicted in early 2020 that this is going to pave the way to mandatory vaccination for the entire population and vaccine passports and second class citizenship for people who don't get injected. And that was dismissed as conspiracy theory, but sadly it has become and endless vaccinations and endless well, vaccinations. I don't know whether it was you that predicted it, but I do recall quite a few people predicting it way back when that, you know, they're going to just get us up to eight jabs at least. And now it's, uh, it's over that it's endless. So, so like Dina Hinshaw, uh, this, this doctor, uh, who's not identified, Dr. A goes on to say that, uh, the respirologists endeavor to practice evidence-based medicine. <laughs> Ooh, oh, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess we should be very deferential because whatever they're doing is evidence-based. Yeah, right. That's probably the another huge dishonesty. Uh, sorry to be on the side tangent, but it would have been honest if governments had said honestly to the public in 2020 that society-wide lockdowns prolonged for a long period of time, so prolonged society-wide lockdowns are a brand new experiment that has never been tried before in human history. There is no track record of success or failure. Therefore, there is no evidence. And so we're going to proceed with this experiment. We're going to impose society-wide lockdowns uh, on everybody. We're going to lock down the healthy populations, which is, again, first time in human history uh, that this has been done uh, on a prolonged scale. Prior to 2020, uh, you know, the, the idea of quarantining the sick, that goes back thousands of years. You see it in the Bible. You, you hear of it from the, the ancient Greeks, uh, apart from the Bible, that that uh, you isolate the sick, and uh, but you leave everybody else alone to earn a living and produce enough wealth to be able to care for the sick, hopefully. Yeah, that, I want to interject right here because this is in the news now, you know, because the premiers met with the federal government and they're all concerned about funding for healthcare because there isn't enough money for healthcare. Oh, surprise, surprise. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that you shut down society for two years. Well, the amount of, the amount of economic losses caused by, by lockdowns is uh, maybe the Fraser Institute or the uh, C.D. Howe Institute or the McDonald-Laurier Institute uh, or any other number of think tanks or economics professors have done calculations, but it's, it's been astronomical, the, uh, the, the amount of, of loss. And then on top of that, federal and provincial government debt that has just, uh, and now we're approaching 10% inflation. Thank you very much. All because of these misguided policies in the past 28 months. 
So, of course, so you have you have your cursory uh, assertion at paragraph 30 of the doctor's affidavit, as quoted in the court judgment, uh, we endeavor to practice evidence-based medicine. Yeah, right. Um, and, of course, you know, the token fear-mongering, COVID-19 infections have been a major cause of morbidity and mortality. Well, yeah, the government has never bothered to refute the evidence that points to effective treatments being available for COVID. What the government does instead is they just repeat the mantra, there is no treatment for COVID, there is no treatment for COVID, there is no treatment for COVID. And then some people hear that a hundred times or a thousand times, and then they say, oh yeah, there's lots of evidence. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's a repetition of a slogan. That's not evidence. So now here is something very devious uh, in the doctor's affidavit, she's quoting from a policy. There is apparently a national consensus statement in regards to transplant recipients that they have significantly less immunologic response to COVID-19 vaccinations, therefore less protection. And this document goes on to say, so now it's the doctor quoting a document. Patients actively listed or patients who are already who are ready for activation, who refuse vaccinations against COVID will be made inactive on the wait list. (laughs) Isn't that nice? You're not getting kicked off the wait list. You're just, you're being made inactive on the wait list. Oh, thank you. And following clinically by the program until they are bureaucrats, ready to move forward vaccination. And then here, this is just sickening. Quote, ongoing education and support regarding the rationale for vaccination will be provided to the patient and family. So that's a nice way of saying coercion. You get this injection or we deny you medical treatment, right? But uh, it's it's very nice language, right? Ongoing education and support. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not education. I mean, most of the people, and you get well-informed and poorly informed people on both sides. I mean, there's people that have gotten injected that are very well-informed and did a lot of reading. Uh, and you've got people that got injected, you know, with zero reading other than uh, just being in awe of, of the uh, repeated proclamations at news conferences by uh, government health officials. And I think on the other side of the equation, uh, to be fair, you've got people not getting the COVID shot who've done a lot of reading and making a very well-informed decision. And you probably also have people not getting the COVID shot. They haven't done any reading on it, but they just have a gut feeling that it's a bad thing. And, you know, that's uh, that's that for that. Uh, but here is ongoing education and support regarding the rationale for vaccination, which education there is a euphemism for we are right, you are wrong, and we're going to educate you uh, <laughs> to our way of thinking. One of the creepy things about this, and it's not raised in the judgment, but are we going to approach, let, let's assume for argument's sake that, you know, it, it really is medically sound and verified to to get this COVID shot, even though there's no long-term safety testing, and even though so many people... And no efficacy either. no long-term it's, efficacy yeah it's, it's good for two months and uh yeah i'm surprised that the federal government would let us get away with getting injected once every nine months we should be getting a shot once every two months uh but again and all of this founded on the big lie that covid is the unusually deadly killer like the spanish flu of of 1918 right if you reject that lie mm-hmm. you can reject all the other covid policies well, yeah, because they claim that you're endangering others. And obviously, with the efficacy of the vaccine being so low and the fact that it doesn't prevent spread at all, that has been 
exposed as a lie. So if you want to claim, I think the judge did claim that, you know, you don't have a right to infect others in this decision. Which which means the judge believes that the COVID vaccine stopped the spread, which is patently false, uh, you know, for the the two big reasons. One, the vaccine manufacturers have themselves said it doesn't stop the spread. And secondly, if they had not said that, we we all saw that uh, massive high vaccination rates did not stop the spread of Delta or Omicron. So we know that the vaccine does not stop the spread. Uh, but I guess on, on this point, I guess the judge is just parroting uh, the government line without any analysis. So the doctor goes on to assert, uh, here, you, here you get the government fear-mongering, significant morbidity and mortality risks that COVID-19 presents to the unvaccinated. Uh, yeah, right. And then the doctor talks about the risk that an unvaccinated transplant recipient would pose to other transplant recipients. Yes. So that's what we just talked about. The, the judge believes yeah. that the, getting the COVID shot will stop the transmission of COVID, which is false. And then uh, the demonstrated safety, not just the safety of the, uh, of the COVID vaccine, the demonstrated safety. Oh, yes. So there, there is no long-term safety testing. We continue to get anecdotal evidence in massive numbers, left, right, and center. was just speaking earlier about, um, and this is admittedly as third-hand, fourth-hand, but uh, a funeral director talking about how there's way more uh, child deaths in the last few months since uh, more and more kids are getting injected with COVID vaccine. And unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to get to the truth of how harmful or not the vaccines are because you have this very powerful government narrative. You've got Dr. Hoff in British Columbia uh, reprimanded for uh, promoting, quote, vaccine hesitancy, quote. Right. So you've got a very powerful government narrative that these vaccines are safe and effective. So it's going to be hard to trust the same government medical system to report honestly on the magnitude and severity and frequency of negative effects and deaths uh, and other, sorry, deaths and other negative consequences from the vaccine. It's going to be difficult to come up with accurate numbers on those fronts. But anyway, the doctor, uh, the doctor quotes, uh, the doctor states that the demonstrated safety, both in initial studies and now surveillance data of the currently approved and available COVID-19 vaccines, uh, which present a negligible risk to people. So now um, the court is done with the lengthy quotes from the doctor. And now, so for the rest of this, it's, it's the judge that's speaking. And the judge says at paragraph 20, it is beyond dispute that the applicant is the sole arbiter of what goes into her body. I accept without hesitation that her concerns about the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines are genuine and deeply rooted. Unquestionably, she is entitled to her beliefs. Well, here's the lip service. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you're entitled to your beliefs in North Korea. What distinguishes a hellhole prison camp where you, you can't even get out of the country without risking your life and they have electric fences and soldiers with, with guns and it's, it's next to impossible to get out of North Korea, which already tells you a lot about what's going on in there when the, when the government says you're not allowed to leave. Oh, like Canada, for example. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty hard. (laughs) It's pretty hard to leave the country. Even now there's still discrimination in place. Uh, the government has merely suspended the, uh, the rules on non-injected 
uh, Canadians being barred from flying. They haven't repealed the policy. They've merely suspended it. So they can bring it back. I predict, and I hope I'm wrong, uh, they're going to start a massive fear-mongering campaign in September about some new virus, and they're going to just keep on beating the drums of fear. And uh, I, th- yes. I think they're going to go after unvaccinated. I don't want to say unvaccinated. I mean, most of the people, I, I'd venture, I guess, 95% of the people refusing the COVID vaccine are people that are very thankful to have had their polio vaccine as a baby and against you know, other horrible diseases. So, so they're not unvaccinated, but, uh, you know, let's say uninjected with, with the new COVID injection, these people are going to face new, uh, discrimination in September. I predict, I hope I'm wrong. And there's still discrimination today because if you've been injected with the, with the COVID injection, uh, when you come back to Canada, you can just go about your business. But if you were not injected, you've got to go home for 14 days and quarantine at home and, that again, based on the false premise that the vaccine stops the spread. So, you know, injected Canadians coming back home don't need to quarantine, but the uninjected ones do because they are dangerous spreaders. Well, this is just purely political punishment. Uh, it has nothing to do with medicine or science. Yeah, they've already started with the B5 variant or whatever it's called. Oh, is that the down in the States? Is that scarier than monkeypox? Uh, <laughs> well, I think somebody, they were talking about calling it a ninja variant or something Ooh, like this. Right, you got to come up with something really uh, scary names. The uh, the wags down in the States are calling it the midterm variant. <laughs> I was reading a national, to come up for I was reading a national geographic article online last week. And this article claimed that 99% of the people that are uh, infected with monkey pox are, uh, and men who have sex with other men. And I thought, I thought that was interesting. Maybe it couldn't be a, a hobby horse to, uh, to create fear mongering in the entire population. And there's probably some political backlash uh, because that's, that's not politically correct to, to talk about that kind of stuff. Now, I don't know if that was you know accurate or not, but uh, this is what was in a National Geographic article, 99%. Yeah. Oh, no, they were talking about renaming it because of the stigma that was being attached to it uh, because it was uh, being passed around the gay community, primarily through travel is what they said. Well, I mean, it's spread by close contact, but the… the uh, Skin-to-skin skin contact. Pro- yeah, yeah, prolonged skin-to-skin skin contact yeah. is what spreads the monkeypox. Yeah, they found the the initial clusters were at some uh, pride events, I think in either the Netherlands or Belgium, somewhere in there. And uh, it seems to have spread out from there, mm. originating, of course, in Africa. So so back to the court judgment. So the, the, uh, the difference between the free society and a communist or fascist or theocratic or whatever else, that every regime uh, in the world today and throughout world history, every regime – has entitled its citizens to have their beliefs. Uh, they they can't stop you from having their. It's impossible. I mean, even the North Korea government. I guess they'd have to. They really wanted to, you know, deal with the problem of North Koreans having their beliefs. I guess they'd have to just kill the entire population because even the most repressive regime in the world uh, cannot stop people from believing A, B, or C, or disbelieving, you know, D, E, or F. So the difference between the the free society and a repressive regime is that in the free society, you can act on your beliefs. All right. So mm-hmm. any judge that's coming out with, uh, you know, unquestionably, unquestionably 
Annette Lewis is entitled to her beliefs. Well, it's just it's just a cheap platitude if you are not allowed to act on them freely, which she's not, because if she acts out freely on her belief uh, against getting a COVID injection, she's going to die. So, you know, there's the freedom that uh, apparently the, this this judge believes that that she should have. Uh, the judge then goes on to state at paragraph 24 that there is no medical coercion taking place here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, paragraph okay. paragraph 24, there's no there's no medical coercion. Uh, okay. And, and then he, he goes on to assert at paragraph 27, it is illogical for the applicant to freely accept all other preconditions to transplantation and object to one on the basis of alleged medical coercion. Uh, medical coercion is what's being imposed on Annette Lewis. She's objecting to it out of her well-researched fears of taking the COVID vaccine in combination with the recognition that, that this is not the Spanish flu of 1918 that we need to worry about. And of course, uh, again, the, the government loves to assert that there is no treatment for, for COVID, and yet the government never lifts a finger to refute any of the evidence that there is effective treatment for COVID. I could respect the government's position if they rolled up their sleeves and did the hard work of actually debunking all of the research. But no, 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 it's much easier just to, uh, you know, just to be the Pope of science and just to, to declare from on high that there is no treatment for COVID. Well, their, their technique is to claim that it hasn't been rigorously tested, you know, for years and years. Un you know, unlike just lockdowns, like the which were regular, rigorously or the vaccine. tested. Yeah, I, or, or the vaccine. Yeah, or, or there's no rigorous testing here. No, that's not a yeah, refutation. This is too easy. That's why it's depressing, because it's too easy. Now, it's interesting, at paragraph 32, the judge refers to Dr. Olivia Cates uh, at John Hopkins University in Maryland, who noted that in the United States, it is not a requirement that transplant patients receive the COVID-19 vaccine, however, it's strongly recommended. Well, you know, there's a difference between strong recommendation and coercion. The difference between recommending it and saying, you, you'll die if you don't take it, I think. Yeah, there's a big difference there. So the judge, now this is interesting how he uh, kind of navigates his way through this. He notes that on behalf of Annette Lewis... Uh, there's Dr. Mallet, Dr. Bridal prepared extensive reports raising concerns about the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines. And then, are those the doctors that are named in the? No, the, they, they're naming they're oh, naming the okay. experts that filed oh, okay. expert reports in in support of Annette Lewis's position. So these ones are named, and that's fine. They they don't mind being named. I I don't know if they requested to be anonymous. My guess is not. So the judge refers briefly to research from Dr. Mallory and Dr. Bridal and um, notes that Alberta Health Services has filed three expert reports and mentions briefly who they are and then goes on to say, <laughs> paragraph 37, uh, in the result, there's considerable conflict between the experts. Now, he doesn't evaluate any of the evidence. He doesn't go through what Dr. Mallard said, what Dr. Bridal said what uh, the Alberta Health Services medical experts have said. He does zero analysis of any of this medical evidence and goes on to say, while there is overwhelming evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe and, safe and efficacious, this conclusion is not universally accepted. So he's basically tipping his hat that he accepts what the Alberta Health Services experts are saying, 
but he notes that, you know, you've got this Dr. Mallard and Dr. Bridal who disagree. Well, again, he's shirking his responsibility to look at the evidence and then come out with a reasoned conclusion, which after going through the evidence says, well, you know, uh, <laughs> my job as a judge is to weigh the evidence. And so, you know, for these and these and these reasons, I find that the evidence put forward by Alberta Health Services is, is more persuasive than the evidence uh, put forward by Annette Lewis or, or vice versa. But he doesn't do that. He just, he doesn't discuss what any of the evidence is. He simply refers briefly to Dr. Mallard, Dr. Breider, Dr. Turner, uh, Dr. Keats, uh, Sir Michael Haughton, uh, Dr. Marcello Seipel, and then uh, says there's considerable conflict, but you know the evidence that the COVID vaccines are safe and effective is overwhelming, uh, although not universally accepted. So he's basically said he just agrees with the experts of Alberta Health Services, uh, but he doesn't say why, and he doesn't review the evidence. He does say why, because it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Yeah, that's that. So, and that's not an analysis to just you know, <laughs> that would be like like a plaintiff and a defendant go to court, you know, and the the plaintiff is suing the defendant over you know whatever child support or breach of contract or, uh, you know, your uh, your your dog barking kept me awake all night and drove me into being a nervous wreck. Wh- whatever the plaintiff is suing the defendant. Could you imagine getting a court ruling that says? Well, the plaintiff's evidence is, is overwhelming, so I rule in favor of the plaintiff. You know, defendant must pay ten thousand dollars. Thank you. Goodbye. I mean, what if it's <laughs> what if it's evidence based overwhelmingness? <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah, if it's evidence based <laughs> overwhelming evidence, I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so here's another uh, gem at paragraph thirty nine. The judge says, not surprisingly, counsel for Annette Lewis urges me to prefer the experts who support Annette Lewis's position while counsel for Alberta Health Services urges me to prefer Alberta Health Services expert. I do not accept that either approach is correct because I do not accept that the outcome of this originating application turns on the safety or efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines or whether ethically a requirement can be imposed that the COVID shot be required prior to transplantation. The correct. What did you just say? What? <laughs> the, hey, paragraph 41. The correct characterization of the imposition of a requirement of COVID 19 vaccination prior to transplant is properly viewed as the exercise of clinical judgment by the treating physicians in establishing a standard of care. So now all of a sudden, these individual doctors get exalted to this supreme position which the judge goes into further and I'll comment on. So all of a sudden now that the charter doesn't matter and Alberta Health Services policies don't matter, nothing matters because this is just a clinical decision of the treating physicians and they are entitled to deference and the charter does not apply to the individual decisions of doctors when doctors are treating their patients. Now, there's oh, a you can see why tyrants love this. Well, it's a thing. big there's a big kernel of, of truth in there. I I think for example, let's say somebody got into a car accident, the ambulance shows up, severely injured patient, multiple conditions, gets into the hospital, is on the operating table, the doctor looks at the patient, and maybe there's there's five different surgeries need to be performed. The doctor's going to decide on the spot uh which of those five should get done first and uh, you know, you've got this clinical judgment thing about physicians where when a physician is treating a patient, are all of those decisions subject to, you know, being in compliance with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? 
uh, frankly, I, I think no. I think individual, you know, we've, we've got thankfully big spheres of life that are not subject to the charter. Uh, so when physicians or lawyers or electricians or plumbers or uh, home decorators are, you know, carrying out their profession and providing services, uh, I don't think that the charter should apply to every decision that that a doctor, lawyer, uh, accountant, uh, engineer, plumber makes. So I don't, but I just find it kind of insidious that you've got a policy in place. So this is not an individual decision that a doctor makes about, you know, the individual patient comes in. This is not the doctor deciding, well, you should be on anti-cholesterol medication, or you should not be on anti-cholesterol medication, or, you know, you should try this drug or try not that, not try the other drug. This is not an individual treatment decision, because I actually think that individual treatment decisions, I mean, sure, if, if the doctor's negligent or uh, complete quack, you know, you can potentially, you can choose to sue the doctor if you feel that, that the doctor harmed you. Okay, fine. But that's not the charter. That's, that's a civil action against the doctor for negligence. So I don't think that the charter uh, should apply to every decision that, that a doctor or any other professional makes. But let me clarify this. You're saying because they had this policy in place, that this is a government institution that brought in a policy, therefore they and the policy are subject to the charter. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And what the judge seems to be suggesting all of a sudden is that this isn't really an Alberta Health Services policy. This is uh, the clinical judgment of the individual treating physicians. So it's not a government policy. Therefore, the charter does not apply. Now, uh, there's probably some merit to that viewpoint, although it's not clear from the judgment what the merit is. But uh, when you've got a context here where the doctors are, they're paid by Alberta Health Services, they're governed by Alberta Health Services. Uh, when Dr. Nagase, uh, this is maybe 12 months ago, uh, he was in a small hospital in rural Alberta, and there were three COVID patients who were getting no treatment, or they were getting some treatment that wasn't working. They were getting worse. He came in there. He gave them ivermectin, uh, along with the vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, because ivermectin by itself doesn't necessarily work that well. But if you've got the proper protocol with the vitamins, there is substantive evidence that it is effective as a treatment for COVID. And I would invite the government to debunk all of the evidence that's out there rather than, you know, simply declaring that it doesn't exist or, you know, simply declare, oh, it's not conclusive. Uh, So that's our excuse for not actually grabbing the bull by the horns and, uh, you know, debunking this stuff if it's supposedly false. So what did Alberta Health Services do? They terminated Dr. Nagase, uh, his his contract. He he was not, probably not an employee, but after Dr. Nagase gave avermectin to three patients, Alberta Health Services says, you're done. And this is in spite of a doctor shortage in rural Alberta and most rural places in Canada. So this was a doctor This was a doctor exercising his clinical judgment. He, in his professional capacity, was making an individual decision. He, by the way, he reported that two out of three patients got remarkably displayed remarkable improvement in their condition in a very short time. And the third one did not get worse. And certainly no patient was harmed by it. 
But there you've got right. Alberta Health Services is directing uh, and, and controlling the practice of medicine. And so I think it's, it's rather naive to pretend that uh, this is just the individual judgment of the physicians treating Annette Lewis. This is their you know, private doctor, right. individual no, doctor's judgment, saying. right? Yeah. It's, it's like, well, they're all, they're all paid for by, they get 100% of their money from Alberta Health Services, unless some of them maybe have a, a sideline doing uh, uh, facelifts and, and um, cosmetic surgery. Okay, may, you know, maybe they are. But I, I would anticipate that these particular doctors, they're getting 100% of their money from Alberta Health Services. We also have Alberta Health Services threatening to fire large numbers of healthcare workers. Uh, fortunately, they, they backed down and retreated in December of 2021. It was a nice Christmas gift to thousands of Alberta healthcare workers. So we have Alberta Health Services aggressively uh, promoting getting injected with COVID shot on pain of losing your job. So we know, we know exactly where Alberta Health Services stands on this. And I, I think it's, it's rather preposterous to pretend that this is just the, this is merely the independent clinical judgment of the individual treating physicians. Yeah. It's like, oh, come on, give me a break. This is Alberta Health Services that is uh, controlling and guiding and directing this. And we know that they're vicious uh, towards anybody who uh, does not get the, the COVID injection. So that's, I, you can't just ignore yeah. that, that context. The viciousness in the, you know, and, and, the, and just, uh, and the whole, well. like, the whole ideology when, when we know that COVID is not the Spanish flu of 1918, when we have good reason to believe, I won't use the word no, maybe that's a bit too strong, but we, we have, we have good reason to believe that early treatment for COVID is available and effective when we know that the vaccines don't stop the spread, when we know that the vaccines are not effective because you need to get re-injected over and over and over again, like we know all of this, and yet you have this fanatical ideological coercion that Alberta Health Services has not hesitated to direct against Dr. Nagase and against healthcare workers, and now we see it being directed against a patient. Oh yeah, and let's not forget the College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons as well. They uh, <laughs> seem to have been directing a fair bit of uh, well, you beat me, you beat you beat me to the punch. You know, I wonder I wonder how oh, this judge okay. would rule. If one of the doctors who's getting threatened and disciplined and prosecuted by a provincial college of uh, physicians and surgeons, not aware currently, I know some doctors have had some threatening letters. I'm, I'm not aware currently of prosecutions taking place, uh, but they very well could be. I wonder if uh, if a case came before Justice Paul Belzil of a uh, a doctor fighting off the disciplinary measures imposed on him by the College of Physicians and Surgeons, would, he, would his judgment include lines like this? And here he's, he's, quoting from, uh, he's quoting from an Ontario decision. And so the judge says, patients engage and pay their doctor, usually through medical plans, and have the power to dismiss them. Yeah, right. <laughs> Got your government health care monopoly with its waiting lists. And oh yeah, patients are just all powerful. They can go to their doctor and say, dismissed, I'm going to get another doctor. Yeah. Like, yeah, right. Come on. Reality check. Oh, I just want to inject right here. I have relatives in BC. Apparently uh, they are having trouble getting doctors there now. I mean, I wonder why when you fire 4,000 healthcare workers over not getting injected with a COVID shot and now you have a yeah. shortage. 
Wow. Well, I heard that, yeah, what I heard was that you, they used to give referrals when one doctor left, they would give referrals to other doctors. Apparently, they're not even doing that now. They're just abandoning patients and they're just without doctors. They can't find anybody. So, Horrible. anyways, that's, yeah, anecdotal. That's from my personal experience. So, Justice Belzil. So, Justice Belzil goes on to quote from um, from this other case, uh, case of Rasuli versus Sunnybrook Health Science Center, 2011 case from Ontario. And uh, he asserts, you know, back to the exaltation of the autonomy of the individual physician, goes on to say, the hospital does not employ the physicians, nor are they carrying out any of the hospital's duties to the patient. They are granted the privilege of using personnel, facilities, and equipment provided by the hospitals, but this alone does not make them employees. They are independent contractors who are directly liable to their patients, and the hospital is not vicariously liable for their negligence. Doctors owe a duty of care to their patients that begins upon the formation of the doctor-patient relationship. Wow. So now, all of a sudden, yes, now the doctor-patient relationship suddenly becomes paramount, except if it's a, a doctor who is exercising her independent judgment and advising a patient that it would not be good for that patient to get the COVID shot, or a doctor you know, providing ivermectin to patients. Um, I, I'm told uh, on very good authority that there is a network of physicians, and uh, I know of one province in particular, that are quietly helping COVID patients by distributing ivermectin with the proper protocol with the uh, vitamin C and D and zinc and so on. And uh, Ooh, so there are an physicians. Underground railway. Yeah, it's, it's an underground railway. There are physicians who are, you know, treating, treating their patients and saving lives. Again, it's just, it, it, it's so detached from reality when you've got the college that is, has zero respect for the doctor-patient relationship, has zero respect for the independent judgment of doctors. And by the way, this is news since 2020, because prior to 2020, and I've heard this over and over and over again from so many doctors, that the college did not interfere in the treatment regimen prescribed by the doctor. And so you had this diversity of opinion on all kinds of issues. Like some doctors are huge fans of uh, anti-cholesterol medication and other doctors say that uh, it's terrible. The side effects are just not worth it. You're better off to, you know, try to try to lower your cholesterol other ways uh, or just live with it, but, you know, do not take uh, anti-cholesterol medication. And then you have probably the majority of doctors say, well, it just depends on each patient whether to uh, prescribe it or not. That's the way medicine was practiced prior to 2020. Doctors disagreed so and doctors. What changed? <laughs> yeah. Royalties. <laughs> So the lockdowns and, and uh, putting the population into a state of fear and taking away charter rights and freedoms and paving the way for mandatory vaccinations. That's really, that's effectively what happened. Uh, that's what's happening in Canada and elsewhere. So Alberta Health Services argues that none of the applicants' constitutionally protected rights are engaged. And the, the Justice Center lawyers on behalf of, of uh, Annette Lewis point out that under provincial health insurance and health services legislation, healthcare services are amongst the most significant social policies and programs provided by Canadian governments. Like Alberta Health Services and Hospitals, physicians and other publicly funded healthcare providers can readily be characterized as acting as agents for government 
in providing the specific medical services set out in provincial health insurance legislation under the general framework of the Canada Health Act. So I guess the way that the judge has broken this down is that it's just decided to that this is not a policy, it's not a government policy that is the death sentence for Annette Lewis, but it's the individual treating physicians who are autonomously, uh, independently mm-hmm. exercising their professional clinical judgment. And my take on the facts, with which I'm less familiar than, than the lawyers who argued it, is that uh, this is a policy that's in place that if you're not injected, then you're not going to get your transplant and you will die. I thought that was the basis for bringing the case initially anyway, because it was policy. And that's what they were fighting was the policy and the government subject to the charter. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and the, and the charter charter violations that Annette Lewis alleges include the violation of her charter section 2A, uh, freedom of conscience and religion, uh, freedom of charter section 7, right to life, liberty, and security of the person, which includes bodily autonomy, charter right to be free from arbitrary discrimination in um, uh, section 15. Just a question. Do those doctors now, since the judge has decided that they're acting on their own, do they become personally liable for something like this? Well, yes. If, if Annette Lewis uh, dies uh, because she's denied this treatment and uh, I don't know what, Annette Lewis is going to do, and the lawyers are considering an appeal, uh, then mm-hmm. potentially somebody could, I don't know how successful it would be, but yes, yes, doctors can get sued. There could be a claim brought for uh, for wrongful denial of medical treatment. Uh, there could be a court action brought on that basis. Yeah. So the judge essentially in this decision anyway, barring any appeal, is essentially saying the doctors are on their own. So. Yeah. Okay. He also curiously, he dismisses, he also completely dismisses without any analysis, the Alberta Bill of Rights. And he says, there's no need to consider Annette Lewis's claim under the Alberta Bill of Rights, because I'm just going to do it all under the charter. And so again, there's a lack of analysis there, which, which I find appalling. Okay. At paragraph 57, the judge says that the actions of emergency room physicians in providing emergency treatment uh, this is in reference to another case, uh, did not render the physicians agents of the government for purposes of the charter. Well, I, I agree. I, I agree. Actions of emergency room physicians and providing emergency treatments to a person, that's not a, a charter case. Yes, you could sue for uh, you know, medical malpractice, medical negligence, uh, et cetera, but it, it, that's not government. That's an individual decision of the doctor in an emergency. What do I do with this particular patient? Right. Which is again, which is an individual judgment that has been completely trampled into the ground by the provincial colleges of physicians and surgeons since March of 2020. I think it's ridiculous to try to compare a policy uh, that's across the board. It's not just for Annette Lewis, it's for anybody. It's a policy that a patient who does not get the COVID shot is not entitled to a transplant. It's a policy. That's not fair. It's not fair to compare that with an individual decision that a doctor makes about an individual treatment and what's best for that patient. So, you know, if this does get appealed, I, I anticipate that would be one of the things put before the court of appeal is that, that the, the, the trial judge here, Dr. Uh, Justice Belzil, uh, is just completely mischaracterizing the facts to try to pretend that a policy 
that sent- sentences the un- the uninjected to a death sentence uh, is somehow comparable to an individual decision that a doctor makes individually about an individual patient. He, he even declares at paragraph 62, there is no evidence that the preconditions for transplantation were initiated by any government body. Uh, yeah, maybe except for Alberta Health Services, which has been shoving vaccines down everybody's throats for, for the past year or more. I mean, come on. So towards the end of the judgment at, at paragraph 84, uh, this would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. The judge says, if Annette Lewis's claim is successful, the result would be to create two classes of organ recipients, one for Annette Lewis and another for all other recipients who voluntarily complied with the COVID vaccine. It's like, no, we already have two classes of patients. Uh, you know, those, those who those who took the injection and many of those, it may have been under duress and those who did not. Uh, but he's he's suggesting that if but if Annette so Lewis what? if Annette Lewis won the court case, we would uh, create two classes of organ recipients. But so what? Yeah. Last paragraph of the judgment uh, before we sign off, paragraph eighty nine. In the result, I conclude that Annette Lewis must die. No, that's a misreading. He says. Now here's the actual reading. That's the substantive equivalent of it, but. Paragraph 89, in the result, I conclude that the charter has no application to clinical treatment decisions made by the treating physicians, and in particular, has no application to the treating physicians establishing preconditions for transplantation. Annette Lewis's application is dismissed in its entirety. Uh, Judgment rendered on this 12th day of July, 2022, Justice Paul Belzil of the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. Appearances and my my thanks go out to the hard work done by uh, Justice Center lawyers Allison Kindle Pajovic and uh, Eva Chipiak, and there's also a lot of other uh, lawyers and paralegals that uh, provided a lot of help on this case. It's a very sad outcome, firstly for Annette Lewis, and of course it, it's also devastating for uh, for Justice Center's staff to um, to see this kind of uh, an unjust outcome. I would say um, all of Canada. Yes, it's uh, basically sad for all of Canada to see this kind of outcome. It's, uh, yeah, I would call it, I would characterize it as very sad. And even though we have joked at times during this podcast, it's with that sadness uh, overshadowing everything. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, I think we'll uh, wrap up episode 27 of Justice with John Carpe. Thanks a lot, John, for going through that case with us, and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin.